Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. And be sure when you subscribe to leave us uh, ratings and reviews where appropriate. So our guest today is Noah Smith, who is a columnist at Bloomberg. Welcome to the program, Noah. Hey, thanks for having me. Do you still have your blog, too? Do you do I that? I do. I don't update it nearly as much as I used to, but I still occasionally do. Okay. Yeah. So he blogs at No Opinion and Noah actually did me a big solid back in the day, which was, I think you were going on vacation or something and asked if I would guest blog for you along with some other people while you were gone. And um, not only was that a very fun experience, but as a result of that, I got a number of offers to write in other publications and whatnot. So if I ever say anything or you see me write something that makes you angry, you should probably blame Noah. Yeah, exactly. You can blame me. Everyone else does. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So we want to talk about the, we can talk about whatever you want, but the main reason why we wanted to have you on is to talk about neoliberalism. And I remember when I was growing up, neoliberalism, I guess it was mainly used as a term of abuse by Latin American leftists or anti-globalization protesters, that sort of thing they might call someone a neoliberal. And then in it's only really in, in the past few years, I've noticed that some people have kind of embraced the term for themselves. You know, there's think tanks and pundits and other people who consider themselves neoliberal. And uh, there's a Twitter account, the neoliberal Twitter account that runs a yearly March Madness style bracket to try and figure out who is the most neoliberal of them all. And Noah, you last year won that. You were declared the chief neoliberal shill. This year, I, you you made it pretty far. You did not ultimately prevail. I should also say that this year I was in the tournament, although I got knocked out in the first round, which probably makes sense. <laughs> uh, you know, if I think about how neoliberal I am. But I'm definitely more neoliberal than you. Yeah, well, let, let's talk about that because, you know, I, this is this is a term that confuses a lot of people. They don't quite understand what it means. So how would you define neoliberal? What is that? Well, you know, neoliberal started out sort of being, you know, a, uh, the original word for what became libertarian. I mean, of course, people had used the word neoliberal randomly at random times. But then the first time it sort of stuck was when, you know, people in the Mont Pelerin society were using it. And what they really meant was libertarian, but that word hadn't caught on yet. So they just meant basically free marketers. Maybe for some of our listeners, explain what the the Mont Pelerin society is, was. Oh, yeah. The Mont Pelerin society was sort of this club for libertarians organized around sort of a bunch of economists at University of Chicago and a bunch of other guys who sort of didn't like John Maynard Keynes. And, um, you know, in the in the mid 20th century, when big government liberalism was kind of the thing, the um, the Montpellerin society was sort of, you know, like edgy rebel intellectuals, blah, blah, blah. And of course, their ideas eventually mostly took over. But then at that time, they were still edgy rebels. Milton Friedman was in it. Friedrich Hayek was in it. There were a bunch of other, I don't remember if like a Stigler was in it, but yeah, there were just a bunch of those guys. And then um, I think it was Friedman who started calling it neoliberal. Anyway, the point is that when, you know, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher came to power and they started deregulating everything and cutting taxes and blah, 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 and said government is the problem, et cetera, et cetera, uh, neoliberal was a word that British lefties, British socialists started using to describe what they were doing because they had heard of this intellectual trend. And of course, Americans just said liberal because Americans 
Americans were always very sloppy about terms. And so that happened. And then as, you know, sort of socialists got more and more frustrated as the era of Reagan and of, you know, business oriented national policy and whatever kept going, you know, for decade after decade, and the American socialists got more and more mad. And of course, British socialists got mad because they're British socialists. They started basically calling everything that they didn't like or that in any way wasn't completely, you know, like socialist, neoliberal. And so you saw Barack Obama get called neoliberal and you saw, obviously, like Clintonians were, were you know, the paragons of neoliberalism and blah, blah, blah. And so they started labeling everyone that. At the same time, Brad DeLong, who is a role model of mine, an economist at the University of California, Berkeley, he's very lefty, you know, he's a social democrat. But he started calling himself a neoliberal because he was advocating for free trade in the 1990s. Uh, he briefly worked in the Clinton White House. And so he started calling himself a neoliberal semi-ironically because of this. But in, in doing so, he and a lot of the Clinton and Obama people sort of started to define what I would refer to as left neoliberalism, which is sort of a respect for business and market, but a desire to restrain business and market. So essentially like social democracy, except sort of a more a more technocratic wonkish flavor of social democracy, really not that different from, you know, sort of the, the center left in Europe or something like that. But, you know, more interested in like stuff like smart policy, like, you know, pro density stuff and uh, and things like that, and a little more pro free trade. And so it's sort of just another sort of flavor of center leftism that had that became popular in America. So after uh, Trump got elected and, and socialists started becoming popular again in America, and especially after, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaign, some dorks on Reddit got together. Center lefties, you know, they were they were center lefties. They'd been drawn to the, the libertarian sort of free market mindset, but they didn't want to be associated with it because so many in the libertarian movement seemed to be a bunch of racists because libertarian economic uh, policies had obviously overreached in many important ways. And so they said, well, you know, what are we? Well, we could just call ourselves social Democrats, blah, blah, blah. But they started calling themselves neoliberals kind of as a joke because it was this like damaged brand. And, uh, and they made r slash neoliberal. And they, they got some, you know, actual libertarians to sort of join their, their Reddit and join their club. So they, they actually managed to get social democrats and libertarians talking to each other in a friendly and, you know, sort of productive way, which is something that almost never gets done. And so that by calling everybody a neoliberal, this giant, you know, blanket. Um, and so then they started having the, the neoliberal shill bracket. And, um, and so it's still this semi-ironic thing where it's this reaction to socialists essentially uh, calling everyone who isn't in their clique neoliberal. So it is a reaction to that, but it's also sort of people who consider themselves pragmatic, sort of technocratic centrist types distancing themselves from the political extremes that are becoming more powerful and popular in the United States right now. I've got a couple of questions on that. Uh, the first one is looking at the presumed candidates in the Democratic field, who uh, or and in, in including, say, a Howard Schultz, who out there sort of best exemplifies, in your opinion, what a neoliberal is? I would say that Amy Klobuchar uh, is pretty much in there. Uh, Kamala Harris. Kamala, I'm sorry. Uh, Harris is uh, you know, she's pretty close. She's th these are both what I would call left neoliberals. Beto, although I'm not, you know, I, I don't know as much about his, his policies. Reuters came out with a big thing today that 
in the 80s, Beto was apparently part of this hacker group in Texas called the Cult of the Dead Cow and wrote a number of kind of very 1980s-ish, yes. you know, early, early internet posts, including some about how to get rid of money from society and other things like that. So he was a teenager at the time, so, you know. Well, you know, when I was a teenager at the time, I was mostly playing Dungeons & Dragons, so, you know, we were all doing so. <laughs> you forgot the most neoliberal of all the candidates, which is Andrew Yang. Ah, you're right. I did forget. I did forget him. Yang gang all the way. <laughs> yeah. I Who can't hear like, Yang gang without thinking gang bang. Which, and so. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, you know. Yeah, obviously he's not a traditional politician, sort of uh, entrepreneur, semi-tech guy who's very concerned about robots. But if you go to his website, there are just like 20 or 30 different policy proposals, most of which are anyone who's on the internet claiming to be a neoliberal, I would assume they would look at those proposals and most of them, they would make their, their heart go pitter-patter, you know, you know, universal basic income, zoning reform, paying student athletes, <laughs> all sorts of all sorts of random stuff. I, I would definitely consider him the most neo neoliberal. Yeah, I mean, no, he's he's definitely in there. And and it's the focus on sort of technocratic, pragmatic solutions with sort of the goal of you know, of social equality in mind, but trying to get there in a pragmatic way without, you know, impoverishing, impoverishing the populace. It's really an underrated approach. And, you know, um, too many libertarians have goals that, you know, in libertarian speak, we'd call deontological, but in common parlance, libertarians sort of think about who deserves what, you know, like you deserve to keep the money that you earned is like a, a, a sort of a folk libertarian belief. And, uh, you know, like the government just shouldn't make this kind of law, even if it would make society more equal or better and stuff like that. And the cynic, cynic looks at the libertarians and says, you just sort of reverse engineered that morality to make people like you more successful. You just said, what would, what social rules would make people like me successful? Let me think of some like, you know, fancy highfalutin ethical principles that would, that, that would then result in that. It's kind of working backwards. And that kind of brings me to the, the second question that I kind of teased. So, you know, there, I, I can think of somebody else who recently was on the show that also will identify as a neoliberal Sam Hammond, is there, and it kind of reminds me of a quote from Jonah Goldberg, and he was talking about uh, some people posing the question of how did the conservatives lose the libertarians, and he will reverse that and say, really, it's more libertarians lost conservatives. Is there any possibility, sort of back to this original idea that you were talking about, that sort of almost ironically that the neoliberals and some libertarians were kind of lumped together, is there any chance of a coalition there of of neoliberalism and maybe the wonkier set of libertarians. I mean, sure, you know, like um, you know, fundamentally, I think the neoliberals proceed from the idea that markets are a good way to organize lots of the stuff in society. That doesn't mean necessarily everything. You know, uh, lots of neoliberals are for universal health insurance, which is basically a government takeover an of an entire industry, right? Or at least mostly a takeover. But you know, they proceed from this idea that we're not just sort of like trying to incrementally worm our way towards complete communism. That's not the ultimate end goal. There's a different end goal, which is better, and it contains a lot of market activity. Like, Hayek wasn't completely full of shit. Schumpeter wasn't completely full of shit. There are reasons to have markets in society, fundamental reasons that aren't just like expediency or lack of technology, that there is actually good stuff about markets. So because of that fundamental belief, they've been able to have, I think, a conversation with libertarians and say to the libertarians, you know, sort of like, well, you know, we get some of the stuff you're saying, but here's some of the bad consequences, and here's ways that, you know, 
maybe we could tweak things and make them better. And and I think, to be honest, I think the libertarians are often not persuaded because there's reasons that they believe what they believe that have nothing to really to do with sort of the rational arguments. And I think, of course, that's that's everybody like people aren't that rational, at least not in these kind of discussions. But then um, but I think that they've they've made some headway and they've helped a lot of people who had been identifying as libertarian, but had been turned off by the racism of the like self-identified libertarian movement and its association with people like Ron Paul and Murray Rothbard and other people who, you know, played up racist stuff. It, it's helped those people make a transition to like the people of the Niskanen Center. Neoliberalism, you know, has helped libertarians make the transition from, you know, sort of like the Cato verse to the Niskanen verse or the uh, Mises society or whatever to like the Niskanen world. And so they've helped that. So I think that they're doing good on that front. Well, I mean, of course, that's subjective. That's what I think is good. I think that was a necessary change. It needed to come for a long time. It was it was in the pipe for a long time. And now it's happening. So um, another question for you. I saw a bit of a Twitter exchange recently uh, with you and I forget who else, but there's some discussion about population size. And it, this may have been slightly tongue in cheek, but you uh, you started making the case a bit for a, a U.S. population of one billion people. What would be so great about having such a dense population? I don't know about having a dense population, to be honest. Like, I don't know about a billion. A billion is a lot. You know, China has the, the territory we do, and they have about the same amount of really inhabitable territory that we do. And they have 1.3, almost 1.4 billion now. And that's too many people. That's too crowded. It's just really crowded and they're going to have real trouble living sort of, uh, you know, modern lifestyles without really wrecking their local environment to say nothing of global warming, but, you know, just wrecking the local environment, um, massive, massive toxic runoff. You can't get anywhere like people are just elbowing you in the face. It's just too many people in China. A billion, I would say, is too much for the land unless we unless big things change. But I would say that we can take more than that. I would say we have all these suburbs that are low density suburbs, a lot of which could be higher density suburbs, you know, put in some apartment buildings, put in some row houses in these suburbs, put in some like, you know, commuter rail and a little more buses and stuff like that. And you can really maintain a lot of the same suburban quality of life without, but, but also fit in like, you know, two to three times the number. And there's so much of that, you know, everyone talks about building more housing in cities like San Francisco. And while that's fine, I mean, sure, that's fine. It's not going to tackle the real problem. The real problem is the, the inner ring suburbs that really need to become more urban in nature. And if you go to places like Europe, you'll see these inner ring suburbs that really feel like urban areas. And we need that. We have a lot of resources, especially in the eastern half of the country. We've got plenty of water there. The eastern half of the country, I mean, you know, coasts will have to deal with problems from global warming, but there's a lot of areas that will be fine. Um, will be one of the regions less affected by climate change. And we have a we have a lot of room. We're a low density country, and I think that we could fit, we could double our population. We could fit 600 million people in this place, no problem. And at a population growth rate of 1%, which is about what we've done in recent years, and now, now we've slowed down to like 0.6, but at the population growth rate that we were growing at in like, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, it would still take us you know, over 70 years for for us to reach that population level. So we can keep growing for a long time and we should keep growing for a long time because a balanced growth path is good. It's good for a country in many, many ways. When countries shrink and stagnate in terms of population, they have to really make a lot of wrenching adjustments. We're not at that point of constraint yet. We're not Japan yet. And it's time and, and we can keep going. So you don't uh, agree with AOC's comments that we should probably consider stop having children? No, that's just uh, histrionic bullshit. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, 
uh, let me ask, because you mentioned Japan, which I know is one of your uh, abiding interests. You used to live there. And I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of have, I, I would say, well, I don't want to accuse anyone of dual loyalty or allegiance, right? <laughs> that gets you in trouble. Uh, but okay. it seems like you do have like kind of a particular affection for Japan and the Japanese people. Is that, you know, would that be fair to say? You know, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, it's, uh, it's my second home. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They of course have a much higher population density even than China. Actually, while we were talking, I looked it up and China is number 80 in terms of population density. The U S is 179 out of, I mean, it, it includes a lot of city States in there. So there's uh, 241 total. The U S our population density is actually pretty low down on the rung. Uh, and China, even well, China is not what, what I would think. I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put too much stock in those national figures because like, so what's the population density of Canada? Insanely low, right? And then yet you go to Canada and the cities are actually denser than our city. Well, yeah, it's because 80% of Canada is, is frozen. No one, yeah, like, yeah. Lots of China is desert. Lots of China is plateau. Lots of China is badlands. A lot of the United States is, you know, like the Rockies and the deserts. Basically, those population density things the national level population density doesn't necessarily give you a good idea. You, you need to know about arable land. You need to know about temperate zones. You need to know about how much land is flat versus mountainous. You know, it's very hard to build cities on the side of mountains. Build, you can build a city in a desert, but it, you know, I mean, you've been to Vegas. That's what it turns into. Anyway, and it's hard. You know, you need water. Like our southwest and west is overbuilt from over withdrawing water from the Colorado River and from the aquifers. So it's really the question of how many you can fit is more about natural resources and types of land than it is about just sheer size on a map. Okay. All right. Well, uh, fair enough. Well, I, I don't know. Have you been to China? Oh, I've been to China. You, you have or yeah, you haven't? I you have been? indeed. I have. Yeah. Okay, great. And so would you say then that China is more overcrowded or more densely packed than Japan? Or is it you, you think it's it's too dense, but it's still not as bad as Japan? Um, it's different because their land use policies are very, very different. So Japan builds everything around trains. China also has a lot of trains, but less so far. It'll be a while before China manages to build the dense train network that Japan has. China has you know more highways, more sprawl. China builds these giant forests of apartment buildings out in places where it's actually hard. You have to commute a long way from those places to get other places. Maybe that's why a lot of those apartment buildings are unoccupied. There's massive highways and and you know traffic jams characteristic of a developing country and so china has has different land use policies and in a way theirs look their cities look a little more like ours and that's unfortunate in some ways in some ways they don't japan is just insanely good at urban planning i would say like there are a few northern european countries that rival them but uh but they're really really good switzerland i would say rivals them uh, norway japan's damn good and they fit lots of people into a very small amount of inhabitable land because most of japan is actually just rocky mountains we could fit more people and so so America has barriers to density and some of the barriers, you know, have good reason and some of them are not so good reasons, you know, but it's going to be harder for us to, to do that. So I, I don't think we'll ever get to Japan level, you know, land use policy. I don't think we're, we're not going to ever be Japan. We can be a little more Japan than we are now. Taking off on that in a slightly different direction, since you mentioned the trains, this is another thing, both in terms of high speed rails, long distance trains, and then also just internal subway systems where there seem to be some factors where in the United States, we do not seem to be able to do these things at the level of other countries. So for example, recently, you know, there was a big 
high-speed rail project in California that is now being semi-canceled uh, and that was already facing you know huge cost overruns and other problems as compared to what they have in Asia or in Europe. Similarly, whenever I go to DC or increasingly New York, the subway systems there, I mean, it's just a joke uh, almost in terms of the delays. Uh, there's a website you can go to, is the Metro on fire to check to see, you know, because there, there have been so many fires on the cars. And I remember, just to give one example, being in London not too long ago, taking their underground, their subway system. And it was it was actually shocking to me because I had always, you know, just mentally associated with if you have a, a subway system, it's going to be dirty and not work very well. And there's going to be huge delays. And that wasn't true, at least in my limited experience. The London subway system was very efficient. Everything worked. It all it all ran on time. There were frequent trains, so you weren't standing around on a platform waiting forever. And it was it looked like the future. <laughs> and my understanding is that would be similar, perhaps even to more extent for Japan, because they're fitting so many people through the system. Do you have any sense of why it is that you see these differences? Is it something about uh, the legal environment? Is it cultural, governmental? What do you think? The short answer is that nobody really knows. There are people who are trying really hard to figure this out now, and it's really hard to figure out. One possible reason is that, so we have different governmental processes that introduce large uncertainties into the construction process, which means stuff gets held up for a long time. Um, and when stuff gets held up for a long time, construction contractors lose their income, so they have to charge a hell of a lot more upfront to cover the uncertainty of that. But it also leads to substantial downtime. So in other words, you pay a lot more because you're paying for people to basically be idle. There's also overstaffing problems, which may have to do with the bidding process. Our bidding process you know, doesn't really have a way to punish construction companies that essentially hire too many people for whatever reason they do that. Land acquisition costs are a problem, but probably not as much of a problem as people think. Uh, a lot of people blame unions and people are like, oh, Davis-Bacon laws. Those are laws that make you pay like a union wage to infrastructure construction. That ain't it because France has more and more powerful unions than we do. And they're much, much cheaper on, on construction stuff and infrastructure stuff. And also, you know, our private sector construction stuff that's not unionized at all has exactly the same cost overruns as the public sector stuff, infrastructure. So like, it's not union. And it's probably not as much land acquisition cost as people think. A lot of it's probably stuff like the crappy bidding process, just a sort of an entrenched culture of laziness where we, we were rich and we're used to over consuming. And so people are willing to pay more. Yeah, I will say that it is something that seems to kind of repeat itself in all sorts of different fields. So not just in terms of public infrastructure, you know, people say, oh, public infrastructure is much more expensive than when other countries do it. I wonder what the deal is. And then it's also the case that our healthcare system is much more expensive than uh, other nations. People kind of put that down sometimes to, well, we have a different system than they do. But the same thing is also true of uh, our education system increasingly and even, you know, military defense. Uh, I'm not saying that there's not a bunch of different reasons why you could explain each one of those. But just kind of overall, maybe we just have too much money. <laughs> and so, you know, we got to spend it on something. And so we bid up everything, I, I, the cost of everything. I don't know. There's some sort of cost involved with monitoring and putting in there, there's it's difficult to like squeeze money out of contractors and, and find like high quality for low price. I think we see this with with health insurance, too. And we see this with like commissions on real estate sales. And we see this with asset management. We see this with a bunch of things where basically because we a were richer and be over 
consumed, we, we refuse to pay the cost of implementing cost control systems throughout much of our society and are now dealing with excess costs as a result. And that's a nebulous explanation that doesn't have rigorous economic models associated with it yet. But I think that this is a big deal. And so I think that essentially we allowed ourselves to have like this crappy, confusing permitting process and uh, just not oversee things like overstaffing and construction companies. We allowed ourselves to do that because it would have cost us a lot of effort back during the boom times when everyone thought they were rich. It would have cost us a lot of effort to, to pinch those pennies. And now we need to, and now we don't know how to. That's my guess. You just wrote a piece about some calls for breaking up big tech. Um, Elizabeth Warren has uh, has called for, for the breakup of big tech, but you said that's probably not what's going to happen, that instead there's going to be more of a merger between the government and big tech. What did you mean by that? So what I think is that a lot of these big tech companies breaking them up does doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, normally what we think of is we break up the companies, they compete with each other, and they either drive down prices or up wages or both by competing. Our breakups in the past haven't necessarily done that. We, you know, we broke up Bell, but we broke it up regionally. So people still have these regional monopolies. And so it's hard to compete. We broke up Standard Oil. That actually did create a lot more competition. That was a long time ago. But with some of these um, tech companies, I think you're going to run into some of the same problems you have with breaking Bell, which is to say they have network effects. So for example, suppose you said to Amazon, all right, you've got to break up into stores for various products. And they did, right? Uh, the bookstore here, the shoe store there and blah, blah. Eventually, nothing's going to stop the bookstore from starting to offer some of its own shoes and the shoe store from starting to offer its own books. And people want to have one a one-stop shop where they shop. That's a network effect. And so eventually it just grows over and it, it grows and becomes big and, and becomes Amazon again. And so that's a problem. Uh, search is even more obvious. Like how could you even break up Google? search. You couldn't. I, I guess you could break up um, the types of advertising. Uh, so like you could say, okay, Google, you have to spin off uh, your platform for non-search advertising. It's not clear how much they would actually compete because what you're really doing is a vertical breakup instead of the more classic textbook horizontal breakup. The breakup doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. So the one exception is you could spin off Instagram and WhatsApp and you could introduce more competition. But do we really want more competition in the social media space? It, like are people paying too much? Are advertisers paying too much? Maybe Maybe you could say, okay, well, we wouldn't get BuzzFeed laying off people because BuzzFeed would be able to more cheaply purchase advertising if, it, if like, you know, Instagram and all, and Facebook and all these broken up pieces had to compete for their for their ad dollars instead and give them cheaper prices. And then you wouldn't have like the death of journalism, which anyway, we could do that. It's not about prices and wages. It's about sort of like externalities, essentially social kind of things that we want to change. And basically the way to solve that is just regulation. You know, you say to Facebook, hey, you can't use people's data for this. I mean, you could say to Google, you can't buy a search result. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Um, but you could say to Amazon, you could implement a non-discrimination standard. And you could say, Amazon, you cannot compete with the third parties selling on your platform. You must be fair in various ways. You can't use your algorithm to compete them. You can't bias, you know, bump your own products up in the search results, blah, blah, blah. So you could do that. It's a regulation, not a breakup. And so there's a lot of these areas where this could be done. And the question is, so at some point, the, the pressure to do that gets really strong. And the companies start looking around and saying, well, what, how could we get back in people's good graces. People are pissed at us. They're pissed about privacy issues on Facebook. They're pissed about like Amazon taking over the world, blah, blah, blah. They're scared. How do we get back in people's good graces? And I think that classically what you saw was companies would cozy up to the federal government and become important to national security. They become nationally important. Often, you know, a war or conflict would help with this. But you saw like GM, uh, you know, building stuff for the U.S. military in World War II. You saw IBM building all the computers that we used during the Cold War. And so they became these systemically important nationalistic enterprises that 
that helped the government. And that, I think, not only protected them mechanically from government uh, regulation because the government said, well, we don't want to regulate our overregulate our own guys. Right? But it also got them in the public good races because, it, you know, it seemed like in some sense, IBM or GM was tied to the public in a way that it isn't in an era of pure laissez-faire. I expect Google and Amazon and to a certain extent, Facebook to go that route. I expect them to assist in the fight against climate change. I expect them to assist in the economic development of declining regions in the Rust Belt and coal towns and places like that. I expect them to enlist in the AI space race and budding Cold War against China. Which side is Google going to be on in the war, in the race with China? Our side, of course. Okay. China won't let them be on their side. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, so they're going to be on our side. We're going to need them. At first, they're going to resist it because they came up in this era of globalization and peace when essentially companies could do their own thing. And, you know, maybe China's government banned them from things, but it was that was just an annoyance. But now the, the playing field has changed. The world has changed. We're out of the, you know, sort of unipolar, dare I say, neoliberal moment. And we're back. History has restarted to make fun of Francis Fukuyama, who doesn't deserve it. The end of history is over and history is back. And the Chinese rivalry is real. The rise of popular anger against powerful corporations is real. And sort of a, a quasi-merger between Google and the government is a very elegant solution to almost all of these issues. And it's also, it has a heavy historical precedent. Just to clarify, so when you talk about someone like Facebook or Google enlisting in the fight against climate change or doing some of the uh, other things, is there something that search or social media would play some role there? Or are you saying just like they have a bunch of money, so they're going to invest kind of as a side project on research? Or what do you have in mind there? Um, I think that they are going to do a lot of official and unofficial defense contracting. I think they're going to advise the government on how to upgrade all its IT stuff. I think they're going to System espionage and counter espionage. Yeah, I think those are some main big things. I think they're going to participate in climate change technological development. So, like, um, you know, uh, energy storage and stuff like carbon free cement and blah, blah, blah. I think that the big tech companies will help research that with government dollars and then install the stuff, you know, with the help of other contracting companies with government dollars and blah, blah, blah. Smart grid, AI for smart grid, all that stuff, building, you know, lossless power transmission or lower loss power transmission. They're going to help with all that stuff. And I think that that is going to earn them some public goodwill. And I think that that's going to earn them some insulation from angry politicians like you know Elizabeth Warren trying to regulate them. Yeah, th- there is a there's an old Onion clip about how it was revealed that Mark Zuckerberg was a NSA agent or something, and that he set up fake Facebook in order to get everybody to give all their information to the government satire. So there's three topics that have been in the news very recently. And if you want to comment or discuss any of them, we can, or we can just end it. The three that I have in mind are national emergency declaration vote for the border wall funding, the the college admissions cheating scandal, and then on a not so light note, the uh, New Zealand shooting. So are there any of those three that you would want to talk about? All right. All so right. emergency declaration. Let's talk about that. Um, total bullshit. Uh-huh. Because am I allowed to say that on a podcast? Bullshit. Well, you you already you already have curse on the podcast, and I think on our very first podcast we had uh, Shoshana Weissman, and she ruined us. I think she may have even dropped an f bomb. I'm not sure. I have a, an entire belief that the word bullshit is actually fundamental to the unique epistemology of Western civilization. Mm-hmm, right. And uh, I don't know if I told <laughs> Josiah this uh, this theory 
but I won't tell it. I won't retell it, but I really do love the word bullshit quite a lot. Um, Harry Frankfurt, the philosopher, said that bullshit is basically stuff where whether it's true or false doesn't really matter. You say it for other reasons, like telling a goofy fish story with your friend, right? You don't tell the story to trick them and you don't tell the story because it was true. You tell the story to entertain them. You know, that's an example. Of course, there's negative kinds of bullshit too, like Trump's bullshit. But Trump is saying we have this border crisis and that, you know, immigrants coming over the southern border are causing this crisis. It's bullshit, but it's not because he wants to convince people of this lie. He knows that he's not going to convince anyone who is not already convinced. That's not the point. The point is to, to divide the world into us and them, to whip up popular anger, enthusiasm of his base, blah, blah, blah. It's like this beside the point point. And that's why it's bullshit. And Mexican immigration collapsed and went into reverse. Uh, and that includes illegal immigration. In fact, illegal immigration actually went into reverse much more so 12 years ago now. It's been 12 years since this happened. And people are just going back to Mexico. And as, as Central America, the inflow is like much tinier. And already you can see Salvadoran immigration is collapsing right now, even as we speak. So it's essentially we're just down to like Honduras and Guatemala. Like that's it from the southern border. And that's who's sending us people. And the number of people they're sending us is a small fraction of what it was in like, you know, the Bush years coming from Mexico. It's just this issue that for a long time was a real issue and now is not really a real issue. So I do think that there has been a shift in the issues at the border that in some ways has made it, it's new and in some ways more difficult to deal with in that traditionally what you had, even if you had more people coming, mostly they were adult men, right? Or sometimes whole family units. And over the past five, six years, you've seen a big upsurge of either women with young children or even unaccompanied minors. Particularly the unaccompanied minors raises some real issues because, you know, if you apprehend someone who's uh, a kid, you can't actually let them go even if you wanted to, right? <laughs> Unless they have a, a guardian or someone to take care of them. So there's some real challenges there. Um, oh, no, I, I'm not denying that there's challenges. There are challenges. Yeah, There are sort of serious, well-meaning people thinking hard about these challenges who are not fanatics in any way. And first of all, the wall is pointless. It won't help. So I know, just to keep it topical, I know Beto O'Rourke, he announced, because uh, we do have, a, I guess, about 650 miles worth of barriers of different types. Uh, some of it is actual wall. Some of it is different types of fencing. And his position was, well, we should actually just get rid of what's there now. Would you agree with that? Or do you think as the wall as it exists is okay, but adding more to it is pointless? The thing is that we already put fences up along most of the places that are you know really easy to cross, populated places, blah, blah, blah. People walk around those fences and walk through the desert and die. And if we put a wall, it would stop some of that and save some people from dying maybe. But first of all, the number of people actually coming across the border is just way, way, way down. So you just look at the numbers and then you look at the construction costs and, and hassle and blah, blah, blah. And you say, well, do we want to like decuple our expenditure on this stuff at a time when the actual border crossing has gone down by 80 percent? Like that's a little silly. That's like cost benefit people. So that's one thing. Another thing is that the um, the people are still coming. The, the Central Americans have figured out that you don't actually have to sneak through the desert and possibly die to get to this country. You actually just have to say, hey, I'm asking for asylum. Just walk across the border and say, I request asylum. And because the United States signed all these nice treaties, you then get the right to have someone adjudicate your asylum claim. 
people have figured that out. You know, I mean, maybe they'll they'll like sneak across just to like get right over the border so they can say, hey, I want asylum. That's what people are doing right now. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, they do have to get past. I mean, that was the whole deal with the what, that caravan or whatever. You know how you get past a wall? Uh, I played Dungeons and Dragons, so I can tell you. How you, get past the wall. you gotta you gotta roll a six or something, a roll a thirteen. You gotta roll I mean, maybe you gotta bring a ladder. Whoever it was in Texas was absolutely right. I forget who said this. It was Republican. He said you build like a uh, thirty foot wall and the thirty one foot ladder business is gonna boom. Yeah, that was Rick Perry. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah. Rick Perry said a smart thing. Let the record show. The wall barrier is not very effective. It is a lot more effective around populated areas. So populated areas, you you walk over the border and you're immediately in a city where you just disappear into the city and then no one can. That was San Diego. That's why that's the first place, one of the first places they built it. Being on the America side of the border in the middle of the desert isn't much different than being on the Mexico side of the border, you know, because you there's nowhere to like disappear into. You're still sort of out in the open. You still don't have like a way to live and get food and all that stuff. You still need to get to the city and then it's a long trek. But you can just ask for asylum. So you go to the wall, you throw up a ladder, you go over the wall, and the wall goes beep, 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 border patrol alert. And then border patrol drives over there. And by that time, you're already over the wall and you stick up your hands and say, asylum, and then you're in. Even if it catches you, as long as it doesn't catch you in the time it takes you to climb over the damn wall, you're going to request asylum. So we want to stop people from coming in and requesting asylum. If we do, if we do, I don't know how big of a problem this is, but if we want to stop people from coming in and requesting asylum, one thing you can do is send a massive army of asylum judges down to the border to say no, 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 until people realize that someone's just going to say no and you have to go back, you know, and that stops that. And serious people realize that actually it's that. The real border wall is a bunch of of grumpy asylum judges who always say no. <laughs> right. um, there, there is another element too, which is, as you mentioned, most of the net increased flow now is not coming from Mexico, but from countries south of Mexico. So, you know, Mexico itself is not a wall, but there's a lot of Mexico you got to get through. And, you know, if we were to try and work with Mexico, there are things we could do to try and reach an agreement with Mexico so that they could discourage the overflow uh, that would probably be much more effective in reducing the people who would even get to the border. Sure. I mean, Mexicans aren't coming anymore. And if you want to decrease Central American immigration, there's a lot of stuff you can do. You can. So Central American fertility has is, is already on a steep downtrend and is, is just now re- reaching the levels that presaged a drop in Mexican immigration. Within 15 to 20 years, they're not going to be sending any more people over. In the meantime, what's happened is their economies have grown. They're now hitting sort of the, the all-important like seven to $9,000 PPP adjusted range where immigration pressure stops increasing and starts decreasing. So when you have a very poor country, give it a little bit of money, they'll, people use it to like get out of the country. They'll use their little bit of money to get out of the country. Um, but then once you hit that peak where actually the country, the poverty in your own country decreases to the point where it becomes livable and you can sort of like, maybe you can have a car, you can have an okay house, you're not going to starve, whatever. Then people start staying because they want to take care of their parents. They want to take over their businesses. They want to stay near their friends and family. And so after you hit that seven to $9,000 level, you know, it's not precisely estimated, but after you hit that immigration pressure tends to decrease and you tend to see people start staying. And in fact, this was true for Mexico. And uh, you did see immigration pressure decrease when they reached that level. And it's, uh, it's true for El Salvador, which is a little ahead of its neighbors in terms of per capita GDP. And, you know, Guatemala is close on El Salvador's heels here. So I think Guatemalan immigration is going to stop soon. Um, And I think Honduras is still quite poor. So Honduras is going to be sending us immigrants for, you know, at least a decade to come. Uh, But if we want to speed up Honduras's uh, transition 
to low immigration. We've got to basically just, it's a tiny country, very cheap, offer them a bunch of like aid and investment, stuff like that. It boosts their income and lowers their fertility rates to the point where not as many Hondurans want to come. So there's all these stuff we can do if we really want to reduce Honduran immigration. If you want to, there's a lot better options than Trump's stupid wall. And I feel like Trump's wall is mainly a symbol. In terms of most relatedness, the grim topic would be the shooting in New Zealand who shut up a mosque based on his, he, he released a, a manifesto and there's some stuff in the manifesto that I think, I'm not sure how seriously to take it. I mean, there's one part, for example, that I read where he said that he was radicalized by some dragon from a video game or something. So in its own disturbing way, he seems to be kind of like trolling after the, he did a shooting spree as a troll, but definitely an overriding concern in his manifesto is Muslim immigration, his view that this is going to lead to the downfall of Western civilization, or more specifically, the white race or, you know, white people or whatever. So, you know, that's obviously pretty noxious, right? Such people are out there. We encounter them on the internet. They they sometimes have ways of making us not be able to ignore them. I guess this is maybe one of them. Um, Yeah, like uh, you have the internet, you have people getting radicalized over the internet. I mean, it happened with with ISIS, right? It's happening with white supremacists. It's like a way to be cool, you know, a way to a way to matter, a way to feel like you're fighting for something. And then, of course, most people realize, you know, they're kind of rational. They sit there and think, you know, if I do this, I will die. Right. And that is bad because I do not want to die. And uh, so I'll sit back here and troll and wait for somebody else to do it. So, you know, these these toxic communities are basically a bunch of people trying to dare each other to go out and do something horrible in real life. And almost none of them ever do it. And then when then the guy does. And that's sort of um, it's that's like that. the, uh, the alt right version of the Tide Pod challenge or the Momo it's, challenge. It's exactly it's that. It's eat a Tide Pod, shoot up a mosque, shoot up a synagogue, whatever, right? Like, yeah. And is there a way to stop this? No. Is there, are there ways to limit it? Yes. I mean, how do we limit it with ISIS and online Islamic radicalization? We unleashed an army of FBI guys on them. And if we really wanted to stop the white supremacist terrorists, we would unleash an army of FBI guys on them. But Donald Trump doesn't want to because he thinks that'll make him look bad politically. Well, and I, I, the FBI probably doesn't have jurisdiction in New Zealand. You're right. There's a lot of these folks in the United States too, but... Uh, we cooperate. Well, sure. We, all, all, our intelligence services cooperate. I mean, like, we don't have jurisdiction in Saudi Arabia, but we cooperate on ISIS. When we see ISIS activity, we know where some guys are. We call up Jordan or Pakistan or, or whoever. We say, hey, there's ISIS guys. And, you know, of course, then they do some horrible medieval torture, whatever, to them. But And then we turn our, we turn our heads. Anyway... We can do that with New Zealand. We can do that with Britain. We can do that with Australia. And we can do that with anyone with these white supremacist terrorists. They're no different than ISIS. You know, we just have to want to and, and hire the guys, hire the FBI people. We just have to, to want to do it. You know, after the uh, Oklahoma City bombing, we actually did a pretty good job of going after the right wing terrorists for a while. And we, um, we broke up a lot of their stuff. And then they sort of slunk away during the Bush administration. And really, their activity really dropped. And then they've started building up again recently. So we're out of the habit of cracking down on those guys. And Trump doesn't want to because he thinks it'll hurt him with his base. And But that's what we're going to have to do uh, to stop that terrorism. Yeah, it does seem like, you know, there's, there's several interrelated issues here. But one thing that I think you have true of ISIS-inspired people, and it can be true of 
this sort of thing is that it's not like, you know, in the, in the old day, perhaps you had organization based violence like the Klan or, or whatever, where you had groups of people who were meeting and conspiring together. In some of these cases, it appears to be people are just self-radicalizing by themselves, you know, through watching videos or reading stuff or commenting, what have you. It's not like they're part of some group where someone tells them, okay, you need to go shoot up this place or whatever. The demographic that you're in, that you're talking about are disaffected guys in their 20s who, you know, kind of concoct these scenarios. You know, of course, my my rule of terrorism, my rule of terrorism is that all terrorists are incels, have a mindset similar to the online communities that call themselves incels. Right. So, that is the oh. standard mindset of a terrorist. Yeah. So uh, for people who are not hip to the lingo, incel, are, that's like involuntarily celibate. So basically right. people, young men who aren't having sex and who, I guess, think they can't have sex. They think society has conspired to keep them from having sex. Right. There is a, there's, there's a distinction there. Yeah. Right. I mean, obviously they could have sex. They could just go hire a prostitute. Yes. And, uh, uh, and in fact they do, you know what the, you know what the nine 11 hijackers all did the day before they uh, carried out their missions? Uh, well, they went, they went to the strip club. They went to strip. The point is that, that that's my theory. So the theory is these guys uh, feel that society has not adequately respected them. Usually failing to, you know, uh, have as much sex as they want is their sort of indicator that society has failed to respect them because they treat sex as this thing that's awarded by society instead of a thing that consenting adults do for fun or whatever. They they treat it as like, you know, sort of a, a goodie that you get when society respects you. You know, I don't I don't know what his uh, dating life was like, but um doesn't immediately strike me that he fits that profile. He's all, He was also... And of course there are exceptions by the way, to the, my rule that all terrorists are incels. But, but I think more importantly, the, the fundamental distinguishing feature of incels is not that they feel that they haven't gotten enough sex. It's that they feel that they haven't gotten enough social respect and that they're just simply using sex as a measure of respect. And so fundamentally, it's society doesn't respect me enough, so I'm going to kick its ass. You know, I'm going to go out there and kick its ass. And so in the modern day, what do you do? You like, you live stream your terror, you relate it to all these internet memes because what you're fundamentally going for is respect. And I think that terrorists share more in common with just like your average, you know, sort of like mass shooter, Columbine, Sandy Hook, you know, Las Vegas, whatever shooter shares a lot more in common with them than we realize like these, these terrorist attacks. And I think that self-radicalization is nothing new. I think during the French revolution, you saw a ton of this, Um, but it's, you know, like these, these toxic communities are have a larger geographic reach and a higher information throughput than they did in the days of pamphlets and, and broadsheets and, you know, sort of like urban whispering campaigns and blah, blah, blah. Um, information is just much more fluid now. But I think ultimately it's the same human processes and it's it's stuff we've seen before. Now, attempting a very creative segue into the third topic, it, you know, you're talking about society giving people respect. And one way that a lot of people seem to view, you know, a, a measure of suspecting respect in society is uh, uh, graduation from a high-ranking college, you know, or attendance at a high-ranking ah, school. There you go. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that gets us to the uh, the third topic, which is, as most of our listeners probably know, there were a few dozen people indicted last week uh, for uh, participating in various schemes to bribe uh, admittance for their kids into schools. Uh, they paid hundreds of thousands of dollars and. Uh, 
some of the schemes were very elaborate in terms of like creating fake backgrounds and other things for them. You know, there, there was one case that I found particularly notable. So the, there was, uh, I guess, Lori Lofton, I guess, who was on Full House. The allegation is that they, she paid $500,000 to get her two daughters into USC. No knock on USC, but it's not Harvard. <laughs> the interesting thing about it is that her, at least one of the daughters is like a famous YouTube star who has millions of followers and, you know, could, whether she is or not, but could be making hundreds of thousands of dollars as an 18 year old just from her YouTube account. So it's not like, you know, it's not like these people need the college degree in order to get a good job and have a good livelihood. But there seems to be, at least in some of these cases, an idea that they need to be able to go to these schools as a measure of uh, respect or whatnot. So I think that when we look at the data, what we see is that rich people don't get much of, a, of an earnings bump from going to elite schools. It's probably just a status bump. So it's like a small benefit for them. But poor kids and uh, kids whose families haven't gone to college, and especially black and Hispanic kids, tend to get a much bigger income bump in their future from going to an elite school. These people are stealing spots from people who need the spots a lot more than they do. That's bad. But of course, there are only a tiny number of people, right? Like the number of people right. buying their way into Harvard under the table or Yale or whatever, Stanford, Rowan, is actually a lot less than the number of people buying their way in completely above board with legacy spots. And of course, it's not a one-to-one -one transaction. Yeah, well, the, the I mean, I guess the from what I've read, one of the issue with legacy spots is, you know, because you ask, well, why, since you can, you can, you know, it's kind of like a unofficial thing that if you donate enough money to the school, they may let your oh, kid Oh, yeah, in. you get fast-tracked, of course. Everybody yeah, knows right. what's going on. It's an unofficial uh, so like, way of buying well, yourself in. Right, yeah, yeah, right, right. It's an open secret. So, so, you know, one of the questions, well, why would you do this illegal bribe scheme in order to, in order to get your kids in if you can just do it legally by giving large donations? And I guess the amount of money that is required that you have to donate in order to uh, get your kid fast-tracked is like an order of magnitude, perhaps larger than what, you know, so even if, even if these parents are spending, you know, half a million dollars to get their kids in, that's actually uh, a lot cheaper than if they wanted to go the donation route, they might have to pay, you know, five, six, eight million dollars, even for someone who I, I don't, I don't know what the financial situation is for Felicity Huffman and William H. Macy, but you know, it's possible that they could afford they can afford to drop a million on it, but they they couldn't do ten million. So maybe that's part of what's going on. Also, in, in both cases, you're right. There's only so many uh, kids who can get in as fake athlete on fake athletic scholarships. <laughs> you know, uh, not only is that a small percentage, of, you know, athletic scholarships in general are a small percentage of admissions, but you can't. You know, if you're the if you're the soccer coach or the water polo coach, you can't have the entire team be fake applicants. You know, someone's going to know. Notice. So it's got to be, it's got to be, I mean, that's, I, I think that's one of the reasons why it costs so much is because, you know, it's a supply and demand thing. Only so many spots, they, only so many people can get in that way. Yeah, it's a, it's a small number of spots overall, but, but, you know, like if you're talking about legacies, the, the uh, Harvard is one third legacy and they're not all paying $8 million a person for one third of Harvard's yeah, right. so, graduating class. Uh, so then let me, let me explain like, so, so what's really happening is that even if legacies aren't always like just direct buying of spots, they are a way of keeping, of making sure that tomorrow's elite are the kids of today's elite. And that sort of 
hereditary aristocracy is bad in any society, is bad in any case, but it's especially dangerous in America right now because we're having this big demographic transition where the young up-and-coming elite is much less white than the old retiring elite. So we, we've seen this once before, actually, with you had you had a WASP elite that didn't have a hell of a lot of kids, and then a bunch of Jewish immigrants came, and a lot of them were high-skilled and wanted to get into the elite. And the WASPs for like a few decades were like, no, Jews, you're stupid, get away, and wouldn't let them into well, colleges or hire them. But then yeah. eventually they were like, oh, okay, okay, we'll take the news. And then, um, and then Jews sort of got into the elite eventually, and it took a while. Now, now uh, again, the elite didn't have many kids because elites don't like to have a lot of kids. And, so, and, and the country grows. You know, a lot, we had a lot of very high skilled immigrants come in the most from Asia, but also from, you know, Africa and, uh, and some places. And then, and these people want spots. They want to be CEOs. They want to be, you know, like top management at things. They want to go to the good schools and they want to be professors and they want all the elite stuff. And, and, you know, but the problem is that the old people are, you know, at the corporate level, the, the old people are hiring people that feel like them that they get along with, right? Because in the old days, that didn't matter. Like, you know, most of the qualified people you were going to find back when the country was 90% white were white. I mean, black people were systematically excluded, but then pretty much all the qualified people were white. So, you know, like that wasn't that big of an issue. Now, if you're a CEO of a company or if you're like a venture capitalist looking for a startup to fund or whatever, and you just sort of instinctively trust the white people more, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're like racist in the sense of like being like a Klansman, but it means that you're just natural affiliation with people who sort of look like you and talk like you and have similar backgrounds to you will end up causing you to elevate people with less skills over the hard charging, hardworking, uh, you know, people of the next generation who really deserve the spots. And that's true in corporations of which there are many, many, many more people than in like, you know, Harvard or like Harvard has only a few people compared to like corporate America and the tech industry and the finance industry and the publishing industry and all these industries. And so I think that we have this massive mismatch and, and that's to say nothing of all the poor people in America, which includes poor white people, includes a hell of a lot of poor black and Hispanic people who just, they, their families don't have the educational background to point them in the right direction. They don't know where to go or what to do to break into the elite. They're just getting completely overlooked. And a lot of these people have the talent to make it into the elite and we just don't find them. And so we've got the situation where the elites that are sort of reproducing themselves, um, they're, they're, it's becoming more and more sort of unfair and imbalanced because the, the young, the young talent, looks less and less like the old elite and that that you know sort of cultural break between the old elite and the young talent is leading to this mismatch where the the older elite are looking to hire looking to elevate and promote people who are sort they have an affinity with uh, who maybe don't have as much talent as the people who they're overlooking and people are getting mad and so I think this is you know when you see elite people sort of like screaming about racism online or making like angry jokes about white people you know, like Sarah Jong with the New York Times, or complaining that the Oscars are too white, or complaining about the lack of women or women of color in science and blah, blah, blah or complaining about sexism at tech companies. And blah. I'm just tossing out a few things off the top of my head, but you can think of all the others. We've seen this continuous repeating waves of popular anger at what's perceived to be this older, mostly white male elite. And uh, and I think that this is where it comes from. I think that it's because the elite, the elite pipeline is still based too much on relationships and affinity, whereas the people who are trying hard with the with more of the talent are being shut out and overlooked too much. That needs to change. We need to get the new talent into the elite 
we need a more diverse elite for exactly this reason. And so when people sort of scoff at the idea of diversity in, in the elite, diversity at top colleges, diversity at corporate boardrooms or, or executive positions, uh, I think hold off on the scoffing with that because if we don't, if we shut out the young talent from the elite, they're they're going to find some way to rebel. And it's not just going to be them rebelling. They're going to get poor people mad too, and then they'll rebel. But you're going to, I mean, like it's always, it's always the elites you have to watch first and foremost. It's always the educated, smart, talented people. You shut them out of opportunity and you are walking into a minefield with your society. What do you think of that? Uh, well, I, there's obviously a lot there and it's a great conversation, but we'll have to leave it there and perhaps uh, you can come back on and we can have a whole uh, discussion on that issue because, you know, it's uh, it's obviously very important and there's a lot of lots to unpack. Uh, Noah, thank you very much for coming on the show. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Hope that was fun.